So tonight I want to speak about awareness as a lifestyle. Because as we are reminded by Sayadaw Tejaniya, that we should consider meditation and the development of wisdom more as a marathon than a sprint. So throughout this retreat I've been using the words mindfulness, awareness, observing, um, quite synonymously. But tonight I want to distinguish uh, mindfulness as a function or a factor in the activity of awareness. And I'll make that clear as we go on. And the way I want to speak about awareness is uh, awareness as the activity of what are called the five spiritual faculties, or the five factors of mind that are most responsible for the development and the unfolding of our spiritual life, or the life of awareness, wakefulness. And these five controlling or spiritual faculties are uh, first, <coughs> the first is sadha, which is usually translated as faith, but it really means having confidence in and stabilizing. The second is virya, usually translated as energy. The third is sati, usually translated as mindfulness. The fourth is samadhi, usually translated as um, either concentration or collectedness of mind. And the fifth is panya, wisdom or understanding. Now the relationship of these five faculties or five factors to one another is that they are sequential in that sequential and causal cause-effect related in that with some amount of faith we're willing to make some amount of effort. Faith is the gives rise to making effort. Effort in turn in this practice arouses mindfulness, the remembering and observing of mindfulness. Remembering and observing of mindfulness, the more continuous that is, stabilizes the mind and collects the mind. And the collected mind sees and understands things in more detail. And when we have this greater knowledge, great, greater seeing and understanding, we have wisdom. And this inspires us even more in our practice, and so we have more faith. And more faith, again, in turn, conditions more effort. And the cycle of gradually developing all five faculties is cyclic, causal, and it results in a gradual development of all the faculties in a balanced way. So, even though we see how challenging it is for uh, to to remember, to observe, to be mindful, to be aware, to check our attitude of mind, and we can see how we can't make it happen. We can't tell the mind to do that, 
and have it obey in any sense of the word. But we can see even after six or seven days of practice as we have undertaken here, we can see that somehow we become more mindful or more continuously aware. So it's clear that we that the mind can be trained through the kinds of efforts and through the kinds of input that we experienced this past week. And if we extrapolate what we see now, occasionally, not continuously, but occasionally in the best of times, if we extrapolate the kind of, or the degree of training that we have seen in a week, and we extrapolate to that to a year or a decade or the remainder of our life, it's clear that there would be a significant, a profound shift in the way that we relate to the world, the way we understand ourselves, the way we understand all of life. And so that's really the measure that we want to be looking at, not what did I get this week, so much as what's the direction of this week's work, and then see where that's pointing. So I want to speak about each of these five factors, talk a little bit about how they, how you can recognize them, and how you can work with them in practice, and how they are um, brought to balance as practice matures. <clears throat> so the first is sadha. Sadha, usually translated as faith, has the uh, I don't know what you call it task, maybe task. It seeks the goodness within ourselves. It seeks the good in others. <clears throat> when we have faith in someone, we see them in a very positive light. When we have an experience of the Dharma, we hear that we hear the Dharma and we we feel inspired and we feel uh, really like it's speaking directly to us. Then we have faith in that 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 kind of uh, speech, that kind of talk. So, as I have mentioned briefly. Uh, when I went to my first retreat, but I didn't, I didn't know what I was, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know anybody who meditated. Didn't know any Buddhists. Wasn't interested in spiritual practice. And it was, it was an accident. It was a karmic accident, if you will. Uh, I was into the Grateful Dead and Pink Floyd, living in a commune, partaking of the sacrament as necessary for spiritual life, and. As I said, I went to this, this uh, two-week retreat, and it was torturous. I mean, it was just absolutely horrendous, pain, horrendously physically painful, let alone emotionally, mentally confusing and bewildering. And, but one thing that really stuck out in my experience is the Dharma talks in the evening seemed to be speaking right to my heart right to what I'd always known to be true, but had never heard or read or didn't know anything about, didn't know that anybody else knew this. It was easy to have faith in the Dharma. It was so obviously, to me, so obviously the way things were, that I had this just extraordinary 
faith, which is called bright faith, uh, at that point. And I was reminded uh, now, several years ago, by Rodney Smith, teacher <coughs> in Seattle. Uh, after I'd done that two-week retreat, I, I went on the staff at the Meditation Center in Massachusetts. And one of my first days working there, I was working with Rodney Smith up in the attic, of one of the dormitories, insulating the ceiling so it would be a little bit warmer during the winter. And now I'd had a you know, two-week retreat. We were having a conversation about Nibbana, as if I knew anything about Nibbana. And Rodney reminded me that I said to him at that time that I had absolutely no doubt that in this lifetime I would realize the Dharma. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I had no idea what was going to be involved. But I had absolute faith in the Dharma and this practice to, of anything else I'd ever met in life, to bring about whatever it is that I was supposed to be doing. Faith doesn't rely on knowledge. Faith relies on some resonance in the heart. Yes, of course, that's, a, that's an unstable faith and it can be challenged and it can be threatened. But if you act on that bright faith, that inspired faith, that, that unfounded confidence, other than it feels right, if you act on that, then of course you can strengthen it and you can eventually grow in understanding that supports that faith. And when faith is balanced with wisdom, personal experience, then neither one is going to get out of balance. So faith, or this sada, has the um, objective, it functions to clarify our spiritual objective. It, what that means is, when we feel faith, we know the direction we want to go. We know the direction to go in order to manifest, to realize, to accomplish, to achieve, to become good, the good within us. We know that there's good within us. Not fully manifest yet, but we certainly have the potential. And when we know the direction to go, we have faith. This is the function of sadha. It also gives us the uh, confidence to walk that path, develop that path, move in that direction, travel the, the, the path, the journey, whatever it takes. And it gives us the aspiration to proceed. Now, I spoke the other night about the difference between a path and a goal. And you might say that having a path, having a direction, is knowing your aspiration. It's like, we know we're going in this direction. We, we're inspired to go in this direction. We feel confidence in going this direction, even if we haven't even taken the first step. That's what bright faith does. Traditionally, faith in this uh, tradition implies or means or is, is we have faith in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, our teachers. We may have some faith in ourselves. We may have some faith based on what little practice we have. Of course, all of those objects of faith can 
not become, not remain objects of faith. You might have some doubt about your teacher. You might have some doubt about your own capacity. You might eventually, at some point, have some doubt about some things the Buddha said or some things that you know. Some of the things that the Dharma. It's like some things he says is really counterintuitive and. Well, we'll have to wait and see. We'll hold off our trust and confidence in that until we see for ourselves. So doubt is, I mean, faith is susceptible to doubt. So we want to understand that just because we have some doubt doesn't mean that we don't have any faith. Or just because we have some faith doesn't mean that we won't have any doubt. But practice in the direction of our aspiration is sure to expose these doubts Doubt is not a, a, an obstacle to practice. It helps us to clarify what practice is. What I found in, as a result of the faith I felt after the first retreat. And I didn't know it was faith that I felt. I, you know, faith sounds kind of like, you know, not not solid enough to rely on. But nevertheless, I can look back now and see, oh, my faith in the Dharma got ignited, even though I wouldn't have said that then. I didn't know what, what was happening. But what happened is that, as I mentioned, I was living in this commune and my life was going nowhere. And it was really dissipated and dispersed and had no, nothing beyond the present moment and not in the right way. (laughs) (laughs) You know, living in the present moment is great, but not always uh, that. (laughs) Living in it's one thing, being aware of it's another. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, so what what I found that that faith or that awakening did for me is, you know, I, I, you know, my, my seal wasn't that good. It was pretty careless. I was young and still pretty careless. And so in rummaging around in the attics of my life and kind of trying to follow this path of practice, then I found quite naturally, not from being a spiritual athlete about it, but I found that I just started cleaning up my act. I just started being a little nicer and giving up some of the behaviors that were not leading me onwards and eventually moved towards and went on the staff at the meditation center. Very different lifestyle than at the commune. But it was a gradual process and it wasn't uh, abrupt. It was just something that I grew into pointing myself more towards um, becoming a better human being in a very real sense. That movement was effortful. It took some energy. It took some of the second factor, virya, because nothing is accomplished without effort. Nothing. You, you can't bake bread if you're not going to be not willing to make an effort with some continuity. And so this Second uh, faculty factor is energy or effort to follow instructions, to get the instructions, to follow them, to make an effort towards 
whatever it is that you see as the the task of uh, walking your spiritual path. However, we might have faith and never be moved to make an effort. And it said that the proximate cause for the arising of this effort or this energy is Samvega. And Samvega in this tradition is called spiritual urgency. To have, a, to have some, not just, oh, that's a good idea, but some urgency, got to do this. You know, the, the history of the Bodhisattva born as Prince Siddhartha in India 2,500 years ago is that he lived in his uh, father's regal homes and was protected from all forms of dukkha, so he was quite naive, but his karmic destiny was to leave that home, and when he did, went out into the world, basically the village, well, real life, he saw, and I mean he saw with, his, with the understanding of his heart, mind, he saw someone who was growing old, someone who was sick, and a corpse. And when I mean that he, when I say that he saw them, I mean he understood all beings grow old, get sick, and die. And he'd never been exposed to that. And it so disturbed him, it so agitated him, it so moved him to try to find a way to address that kind of suffering, to be free of that kind of suffering, to understand that kind of suffering. And he left home and went about his spiritual practices, eventually resulting in becoming a Buddha. What is it in your life that has called you to even come to a retreat? That just says, i got to do this. I want to do this. i got to do this. This is important for me. This is significant for me. Maybe you have just a little faith. Maybe you have a lot of faith. Maybe you have no faith. Maybe you don't know what you're doing here. But something called you. And there are moments of urgency in our life from the first time we hear the teachings to different kinds of challenging conditions we face in life can really turn our minds towards practice. Often it is a loss, a loss of a pet, when you're young, or uh, a parent, or a partner, uh, loss of career or opportunities, or uh, just any of those things, especially a death, can just drop your mind into a place of, wow, what's this all about? What's this whole life all about, anyway? And when we, when we start feeling that, question, you know, there's no amount of talk and proselytizing is going to answer that satisfactorily. If you're seeking, you know, what for you is going to be the truth. And that can be the, the, the fuel for, for practicing. 
after I'd been practicing for about uh, nine years, doing retreats in the West, here in the West, with Western teachers for the most part, uh, being on staff and around the Meditation Center in Massachusetts, I went to the retreat center for a self-retreat uh, in the middle of the winter when there weren't many people there uh, over, the, over my birthday, because I always did. And, you know, I was 34, and I was, you know, young adult, uh, kind of making my way into normalcy, <laughs> I guess. And uh, uh, about the third, fourth day of the retreat, I was lying down after lunch, and now I'm not a woo-woo-wow-wow guy, I don't, I don't get woo-woo-wow-wow, nothing super weird ever happens to me, I'm just normal, I mean, but I had this vision, and it was as clear as just <coughs> looking at any of you right here, I had this vision appear in my mind's eye of a shrouded female form and her face was just a skeleton. I don't know how I knew it was a female, but somehow it was. And um, she said to me, uh, the moment of death is the most important moment of your life. That turned my, my whole life from what I had, I'd been, I was a contractor building homes and renovating and, and had my own business, <coughs> been doing that for about 15 years. And I just said, I can't do this anymore. More, more jobs, more money, a better car, a nicer house, more pets, whatever. Nicer clothes, whatever. It just dropped off the screen as anything worth pursuing. And I said, wow, what am I going to do? This just doesn't work for me anymore. And the only thing that I knew that had value to me that was, other than that, was to meditate, just practice. I wasn't very good at it. I still didn't know how to, I didn't know what mindfulness was or how to be mindful. I like sitting. But I think it was doing repair work, you know, family of origin repair work, just sit kind of unspooled, just all kinds of stuff. And I knew that there had to be more to mindfulness practice or as a result of mindfulness practice than I had experienced. And I didn't even I didn't even contemplate it. I just knew I was going to Asia to to, to practice. And I wanted to, at that point, I wanted to be a monk. I wanted to live in a Buddhist country. And I wanted to meditate intensively, like we do here on our retreat, until I didn't want to do it anymore. <clears throat> Took me a year, but I wrapped up lay life in the West, and off I went. Now, I've been struggling for, you know, nine years just to try to keep my mind on my breath for two or three breaths in a row, and just really, you know, just accidental to ever be mindful at all. It was just not skillful at all. But when I got to Burma, I was on fire. I was, I didn't want to do anything. I wasn't there as a tourist. I wasn't there to look around. I wasn't there to, you know, travel the country or anything. I went right to the monastery, checked in, said, 
That's it. This is all I'm. This is all I'm interested in doing in this life. So I was uh, talk about urgency. It was, it was ridiculously urgent. Anyway, um, I knew what I was there for. It was just a practice, and that was it. So it is said that effort or virya has manifest as non-collapse. Now you know, you know what? This is a visual teaching, <laughs> okay? So you have to look. Collapse is when you're going along and you're meditating, you're meditating, you're meditating, and something comes through your mind and you go. Physically collapse. You just kind of collapse into yourself. That's mental collapse. That's lack of energy. I didn't have any of that when I was. I didn't have any collapsing when I was there. And the the the, the, the instructions or the schedule at the monastery was: wake up at three, alternate hours of sitting and walking till eleven o'clock at night. You get a couple of meals in the, in the early morning. That was it. Alternate hours, sit and walk. Well, I said, gee, if. Uh, if sitting an hour is good, sitting an hour and a half must be better. Well, sit an hour and a half. And after I got familiar with that, I said, well, if sitting an hour and a half is good, sitting two hours must be better. I had that kind of energy. And I said, two hours. And I said, two and a half hours, three hours, three and a half, four, four and a half hours. You know, when you're sitting four and a half hours each time you sit, you don't have to sit many times a day. <laughs> you know, it's just like... Sit down once, get up, walk a little bit, sit down again, get up, done. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was excruciatingly painful. So I'd go to Upandita every day and I'd report my experience and I'd go in with these elaborate, just details of exquisite pain and what happens when I was sitting. And uh, he'd listen, and, you know, in his way, yes, yes, okay, mm-hmm. please try harder. You try that, okay, okay. So I sit longer, you know, wouldn't move, just fire, body burning up. It was just unbelievable. So after a couple of weeks of this, he says, uh, one time he says, uh, You know why you have so much pain? Ah, I was ready for the secret teachings. (laughs) Why do we have pain in the body? I said, Huh. No, I don't know why. He says, you sit too long. <laughs> too much energy. You know, when energy and effort is not balanced with calmness and collectedness of mind, you can go way off in la-la land. So, just to point to energy, effort has to be balanced, brought into balance with the fourth factor, which is samadhi, which is tranquility of mind, the collectedness of mind, stability of mind. <laughs> you know, as Sayadaw Tejaniya says, it's not difficult to be aware or mindful. It's difficult to, re- to maintain it continuously. And for this, you need right effort, which is simply perseverance. It's not grim, it's not striving, it's just Show up. Perseverance. Again, Don Juan, the great teacher of Carlos Castaneda, says, or Carlos wrote of Don Juan's teaching, he says, 
Don Juan had assured me that in order to accomplish the feat of making myself miserable, I had to work in a most intense fashion and that it was absurd. I had now come to realize that I could work just the same in making myself whole and complete and strong. The truth is in what one emphasizes, he had said. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves strong. The amount of work is the same. something to reflect on. We have to work hard to make ourselves miserable. To really worry and anxious and fretful and depressed, whatever it is. We're not working skillfully, but it's taken a lot of energy to do that. So when we make skillful effort, skillful energy in practice, then we become more mindful. We remember more frequently to recognize the present moment's experience. To remember is the function of the third faculty, sati, usually translated as mindfulness. Now, I'm distinguishing this factor of mind, mindfulness, whose function is to remember from the activity of these five faculties, which is awareness. So we might say, mindfulness alone is not enough. It takes the whole five faculties. But the, to, to remember means to not forget what you're doing, to not forget the present moment, to, to recall or to remember to observe what the present moment is. And to the manifestation of sati is to observe, to, to come face to face with the present moment and to become intimate with it, to become intimately in touch, to feel into, to really feel what this present moment feels like. That is the characteristic of sati. It is to, to not to float away. You know, when experience happens, if we just float around on the top of it and think about it, we're just kind of skimming across the top. We know what's happening, but we're not really tasting it fully. We're not really intimate with that experience. It's mind, the characteristic of mindfulness is to not wobble around experience, but to plunge into the experience, to feel into it. The proximate cause for this remembering, observing, and not wobbling is clear perception. Now, clear perception or perception isn't one of the five faculties, but it's necessary in practice, because perception is the activity of mind that distinguishes one moment from the next, or the qualities of one moment from the next. It's when you see something that you've seen before and you remember or you recognize, oh, that's familiar. That recognition is perception. If it's something that you have never experienced before, and here's where I usually talk about Chico. Do you ever have a Chico? Do you ever eat a Chico? I talked, about, I talked about this to the, the group of young adults this morning, so they know the story. But if you've never tasted a Chico, well, let me tell you about a Chico. Chico is about the size of a kiwi. It's brown. It's a fruit. It's got a soft, uh, fuzzy brown skin. It's not as coarse as a, as a kiwi. It's smoother. And inside, you cut it open, and the color of it is like cinnamony, 
cinnamon color. And the texture is about like a ripe pear, not too ripe, not mushy, but just firm. And there's five seeds, about the size of small almonds, black and shiny. And when you taste this Chico, its flavor is something like a custard of cinnamon, cardamom, and maple sugar. It is unbelievable. Now you know what I mean? Yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> Unfortunately, words can never bring you to the empirical experience of tasting a Chico. That's the difference between mindfulness and the idea of experience. We, have, we are full of ideas about what life's about and should be about and what we should do and not do and what's good and what's bad and otherwise. We have all these ideas. Mindfulness will taste all of those experiences and know for sure. Because mindfulness tastes. Mindfulness feels into. Wisdom recognizes. I mean, uh, perception recognizes. So if we are clear, clearly recognizing what this moment is, we'll be mindful the next moment. And if we clearly recognize what this moment is, we'll be mindful the next. So clear perception supports continuity of mindfulness. Okay, so I'd been in the monastery for, I'm not sure if it was in my first year, or second year, or third year, I can't really remember. But I remember when it happened, I remember, I remember where I was. It was in the afternoon, I was walking in the back hallway behind my room in the men's dormitory, the, men, the foreign men's little bungalow at the monastery. And I was walking, slowly, in the direction towards the bathroom. I wasn't going to the bathroom, I was just walking there back and forth. And I saw something in my, I saw something in my experience that I go, huh, what's that? I saw this kind of collapse. I said, huh, what's that? I, 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 didn't, I didn't recognize that. So I kept walking and oh, there it goes again. And I'm walking again, there it goes again. And I started to notice that every time I had a certain kind of thought, my energy would go, uh. And the thought always began with, oh, poor me. Oh, poor me. I'm too old to be doing this. Oh, poor me. I'm too stupid to be doing this. Oh, poor me. I'll never get very far with this practice. Oh, poor me. I've done too many drugs to ever do this successfully. Oh, poor me, I haven't done enough drugs. <laughs> I mean, no, the, mind will say any, the mind will say anything and we'll believe it. But every time I had this, oh, poor me, this, this kind of self-pity, the bottom would fall out of my practice, momentarily. And I thought, wow, I've never seen this before. I, I, I you know, being young and naive and ton of energy, excess energy. I hadn't, I'd, never, I'd never considered that anything in the world wasn't possible. Or I never was aware of it. But now I begin to see it. Frequently. And I thought, jeez, I, I must have been overriding this with something else. Okay, so I got really interested in, in self-pity. And I, it, I was so alert to it I was just on it. As soon as it would, as soon as the, the 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 tone of voice went from yes, yes, yes to oh, poor me. I was right there on it. 
uh, not with aversion, but just I was so interested in what was going to what it was going to say, and didn't want to collapse. Well, I did that for a while. I don't remember how long, whether it was a few weeks, a few months. I'm not sure, but I have never seen it since. And that doesn't mean that there hasn't been plenty of conditions in life to feel self-pity about. There is. There's always something coming up. It's just, oh, shoot. One form or another. But when mindfulness sees, remembers to recognize that experience every time, and you clearly recognize it, and you know it to be unskillful, the following, leading to collapse of energy, you never forget. Once you've, once you've burned that into your mind, that this is an unskillful place to go, you won't forget. And this is how we begin to really totally uproot these tendencies from the mind. Not by avoiding them, not by covering them up with some artificial borrowed confidence, but from looking at them. Every time they come up, just go, huh, I see you. I see you. And not buying into it. Whatever the defilement is. And this is how we learn about them, how we get totally... mm, never let them go by unnoticed. And in time, they lose their, their roots. They just don't have roots into the mind anymore. Now, one thing about mindfulness, this remembering to observe, to become intimate. It's not that some can do it and some can't. It's not that. Sometimes we might think, Jesus, I can't. I can't be mindful, you know, for very long. It's a mental muscle, and like any muscle, if you exercise it properly, it will grow in strength. It's not personal. It's just cause and effect. If you exercise this muscle, it will grow. And what that means is you, the mind will, be, will remember with more continuity. It will just remember more and more and more. This is the development of mindfulness. This is the development of awareness. This is remembering continuously. So it's not a matter of personal capability. If the work is done, if the right view is there, and the aspiration is there, and the faith is there, and the effort is made, if there's an urgency, remembering will happen. And when you remember, you'll observe, you'll become intimate with, and from that continuity of mindfulness, the mind becomes stable. This is the fourth, uh, fourth faculty. The fourth faculty is called samadhi, or stability of mind, sometimes called concentration, or collectedness of mind. I don't like the word concentration because when you say concentrated mind, it seems like you got to boil it down <laughs> from you know maple sap to maple syrup, you know. And it's just that's not that's just the wrong image. You don't have to squeeze the mind to make it more concentrated. 
you know, when we when we focus our attention on a small object like the sensations at the tip of the nostrils or any place else in the body, when we focus on that and just kind of keep sending it there, 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 over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, it collects the mind. It collects the mind from wandering away. Because samadhi is the opposite of restlessness. Restlessness is the wandering mind. The mind that seems to be wandering here, wandering there, unknown. It's when we're thinking and we don't know it. And collecting this is just the opposite. If the mind is collected and we know where it is, it, all the pieces of the mind have kind of been brought together to land on this moment's experience. It's like this, you know, it says that the characteristic of, of um, samadhi or the factor of mind is the kegata, gone to a single point, that results in the experience of samadhi. It says the characteristic is non-scattering, non-wandering, non-distraction. So non-distraction, not, not to stop thinking about things, not wandering, the mind isn't wandering away. Now, you know when you get a new catalog in the mail? You ever get a catalog? I mean, mostly it's all online now, but you get a catalog in the mail. Now, you, you know, and you're going to go home from the retreat, there'll probably be at least one. Okay, so you pick up the catalog. Now, here is a little book of 60 pages of things that you've never needed until now. <laughs> right? And you just, you know, I mean... You're not really, you know you don't need anything in it, but still, hey, you'll take a look, just in case. So you open it up, and on every page, there's eight or ten things that your mind goes, your mind scans and goes, yes, no, 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 maybe. Next page, yeah, no, 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 maybe. Wherever there's a maybe, you fold over a corner of the page, you can refer to back to that page. Huh? You go to the next one, no, 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 oh, maybe, and there's another page, okay, no, 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 maybe, yeah, 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 yeah. Two folds. <laughs> Whatever it is. Somehow you've got to have a system. So, you know, you go through the book like that. You know, and after 60 pages of 10 each, you got, you've looked at uh, 600 things that you've never needed until now. Except now your mind is so dispersed. A little piece of your mind is left on every object of every page. And you have no strength of mind whatsoever. And that feeling is so unpleasant and the mind is so dispersed, the only way to kind of get rid of that feeling is to collect it all on one object and buy it. <laughs> Do you ever see how, how at the end of looking at a catalog you just feel kind of, kind of washed out? Unless you say, yeah, I'm going to get that one. Then you go through all that activity, yeah, 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 focusing your mind, collecting your mind. Your mind's not wandering anymore. It's just right here. You know, do 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 do. Trying to sign the credit card thing. Call, make the number, do whatever. Yeah. Now you can wait for it. <laughs> Dis- you, the dissipated mind has been collected again on that object. Well, this is what happens in meditation. We we if the mind is wandering over all these thoughts and, you know, ruminating in the past and kind of fantasy planning the future and you're kind of unconscious about it, you're kind of not aware of it, you leave a little piece of your mind, it's like you leave a little piece of your mind in that memory, in that plan, in that thing, in that thing, and then you got no strength of mind to recognize and to, res- to recognize and to confront 
the defilements when they arise. The mind is dis- dissipated. Interestingly, the proximate cause for this collectedness of mind is not striving. You know, sometimes we think, well, if I really just drill into this moment's experience, I'm going to get collected. All you get from that is a headache. Really, the proximate cause for this collectedness of mind is sukha. Sukha is the opposite of dukkha. Now, remember what I said about dukkha? Pain, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness, all those horrible things. Sukha is happy comfort of mind and body. Happy comfort of mind and body. So how do you make your mind and body comfortable and happy? You relax. If the body's relaxed and the mind is not being tormented with (coughs) demands, it's just at ease, quite naturally the mind will land on the present moment Again, and again, and again, and again, because it's pleasant. Sukha is the proximate cause for the collectedness of the mind, for the stability of the mind. So whenever you find yourself struggling in practice, struggling to... You know how we struggle with mental states, we struggle with memories, with plans, we struggle with all kinds of things. Agitating the mind, discomforting the body... And the mind gets dispersed. When you can recognize that and say, whoa, relax. Relax the body. Let go of any agenda in the mind. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to get rid of it. Relax. Then quite naturally, the mind will land on the present moment. Now you don't have to force it at all. The effect of a collected mind is to unify the mind and to unify anything in our environment. So, when the mind gets collected, everything gets woven into this moment. One understanding. So, you know, you can look at the, the grain of wood on the floor here in the meditation hall, and it's a total random grain. It's not... It's not artificial. I mean, it's just totally random. But if you were if you were doing walking meditation in this floor and your mind was very collected, your mind would make a unified whole out of all those boards, all those grains, all those lines of growth in the trees. Even though there's no uniformity to it, your mind would make it. That's what a collective mind does. Or you you know, you're walking on the path outside and it's got the, that gravel you know that crunches under your feet. And they're just random rocks. You know, they're just random little pieces of gravel. But when the mind is really collected, it sees patterns in that gravel that aren't really there. But the mind is collected. So it will, it will make disparate things into a singular whole. Okay. So do you know about Deepama? Deepama is this uh, Bengali woman who... Uh, through extraordinary difficulties and pain in her life and just a lot of suffering. She went to the meditation center and to practice this kind of meditation and she was an extraordinary yogi. She just had 
very strong samadhi, even on day one of her retreat. And later she was able to do uh, jhana practices or absorption practices that were just extraordinary. And <clears throat> so a friend of ours, a colleague of ours named uh, Jack Engler, for his uh, PhD at Harvard in psychology, he uh, took Western psychological tests like the Rorschach test, the thematic apperception test, and other tests, Western psychological tests, to India to offer them to a number, a dozen men and women who had practiced in this way and had been identified as having attained at least first, second, or third stage of enlightenment. So he offers these tests to them. And they're all, you know, analyzed and when they come back to uh, the West. And when they got to Deepama's Rorschach test, now you know the Rorschach test is the inkblot test, you know, where you, you have these ten cards and the first one's, you know, a little inkblot kind of folded up and you look at it. And when you see this inkblot, you know, you're asked, well, what do you see? Of course you see an inkblot. And if you say that, they'll make the little note of that. And then if you say, well, I see a horse over there. And they say, where do you see a horse? Oh, I see it right there. Okay, and I see a candle and a butterfly and whatever. Oh, where, where do you see that? And so you point out everything that your mind is projecting onto this that you see. Of course, it's an inkblot, but you can, you can see things in there. So the first one's easy. The second one gets a little more complex. Well, by the time you get to the tenth one, it's a cacophony. It looks like a, you know, kind of a, one of these... Who's the painter? Jackson Pollock paintings on the wall. It's like... <laughs> it's just big splashes and gobs of color and it's just like... You can't see anything except it's a mess. But anyway, you see something and, and you, you, you see... And you tell them what you see. Then they analyze what you saw and come up with something. I don't know what, I don't know what this measures, but anyway, they, they analyze it. Well, when they analyze Deepama's Rorschach test, they realize that they had never seen anyone or never heard of anyone doing what she did with the Rorschach test. So they scoured all the psychological journals or whatever to see if there was any record of anybody ever having done what she did. And they found one that was similar, not quite the same, but similar, by, it was a Rorschach test of a, I'm going to, how do you say it, First Nation Shaman in the West. What she had done is she had told a story of the Dharma and had woven every image she saw in all ten cards into a single story. She saw one thing in those ten cards, and it was a story of the Dharma, and she pointed it all out. That is a very collected mind that can take all of those disparate, meaningless, and non-related issues, uh, images and make it into a whole, a single thing. As you saw. That's what concentrated mind does. So when we practice and we are relaxed and open and continuous, it's the continuity of mindfulness that results in greater samadhi. So the more continuous the remembering to recognize the present moment is, the more collected the mind becomes. It doesn't matter what you are aware of. It's just the, the function of the continuity. So you can have your eyes wide open and take in this and know that, or you can be focused on these microscopic sensations at the tip of the nostrils. doesn't matter. 
is the continuity of moments of remembering to recognize. And when the mind gets collected like that, and you look at whatever comes up in your mind, feelings, memories, plans, anything, you have this piercing clarity of what's going on there. This is wisdom. As the Buddha said of, of concentration, or of the collected mind, mm. one who is concentrated, Samadhi, knows and sees things as they really are. This is wisdom, the fifth of these spiritual faculties. Now, wisdom is just that. It's seeing through the beliefs about, the assumptions about, the uh, what you've been told about, any experience, and you see it as it really is. You understand it as it truly is. And increasingly, we know both the quality of that experience, its unique quality. You know, sadness is different than fear. Fear is different than joy. Joy is different than depression. Depression is different than happiness. Okay, so, and and everything else that comes into view. And so you see things in their uniqueness. You see everything in its uniqueness. And you also see everything in their universal qualities of being impermanent, having the characteristic of dukkha, and having the characteristic of not-self. Well, seeing things in their uniqueness is recognizing the fullness of life, and seeing everything in their unique characteristics, seeing the universal nature of life. And it's these, this combination of both the uniqueness of the moment and the universal nature of all experience that when you really grok it, you don't hang on. And this is the wisdom of insight. Insight into the three characteristics. Knowing with wisdom, knowing reality, does not have the characteristic of becoming boring, uninteresting, or monotonous. It is always new and always fresh. You don't get tired of knowing, because knowing is never finished, it never gets boring. You need to be happy with the work you're doing, you have to have an interest in it. And this is the work of your life. Sadotisneus, comment. So let's take a moment and let these words settle down. With this kind of wisdom, this kind of understanding, we can't help but have more faith in the Dharma, in the practice. And with that faith, we'll make more effort. We'll remember more. We'll understand more. And as Sayadaro says, when your understanding of the true nature of things grows, your values in life will change. And when your values change, your priorities will change as well. And through such understanding, you will naturally practice more 
And this will help you to do well in life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.